I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open them to Psalm 64. I had a privilege this week, along with my family, of driving to Oxford, Michigan to watch my niece graduate from high school. She's the first uh, grandchild in the family to reach that milestone. And it was nice for us to get a picture of her holding Eva, had the oldest and youngest grandkids in the family together. It was interesting, though, because we got there Tuesday evening and we made it mostly in time for the graduation ceremony. We were a couple minutes late, but they were just getting started. And we were had the opportunity to hear several speeches that were given. You know, you sat through a graduation ceremony and and, you know, you always have, uh, of course, the valedictorian gives a speech. They had two valedictorians, so they both gave a speech. And there was another girl, I think she might have been class president, who gave a speech during the ceremony. And it was really interesting to listen to those speeches uh, that were given. The one that was given, like I said, I think by the class president was very interesting. And she emphasized in her speech the short duration of life and our relative insignificance in the cosmos, which she said paradoxically meant that our lives were really quite significant. Her speech was heavily influenced by Carl Sagan's naturalistic and agnostic philosophy. She even quoted from his book, The Pale Blue Dot, Now, frankly, I'm not exactly sure how that works. We're so unimportant that we're actually important. Uh, Our lives are so insignificant that, in fact, they're really significant. But um, it sure sounds profound anyways. Now, I don't want to make fun of her this morning. Um, You don't know her. I don't even know her. But I don't want to poke fun at an 18-year-old kid, um, adult whatever you want to call them, 18, I guess she's an adult. But anyways, but I want to point out to you something. I'm thinking about this speech that she gave and the things that she said. She wrote this speech and delivered it to several thousand people that were at the graduation ceremony. And it reminds me, to be honest, very much of myself as an arrogant 18-year-old high school graduate. Like, just about every other newly minted adult, at least here in the United States. I had a pretty good grip on how the world worked, you know? And like most of you, I had a very, very deep understanding of my place in the universe. At least I thought I did, right? But you know, there's deep and then there's deep. There's the depth of the human heart, which is unsearchable to us as men and women. And then there's the depth of God's understanding. The problem is that we're tempted to think in purely human terms without regard for God at all. And when we begin to think that way, we begin to think of ourselves as being really very clever and very deep. And if we're not careful, we can begin to think that we're really the only ones who understand the depth of our own heart. Our thoughts. The things that motivate us. That's kind of what we find in Psalm 64. David, in this psalm, prays to help or prays for help from God because he's under constant attack. Now his enemies aren't physically attacking him. They're they're plotting and they're scheming against him. They're whispering lies and slander. And they're thinking that their actions and their motives are hidden. They think that they're completely secret. But when reality comes crashing in, they're in for a big surprise. Look with me at Psalm 64. It's a psalm of David. He says, Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity. 
who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. So he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away. All men shall fear and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. Let's pray together and ask God's help as we study his word this morning. Heavenly Father, again, I come to you, and I want to say right at the beginning that this is your word, that we recognize that. This is, maybe was written by the pen of King David, and yet he was your instrument, being carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote, so that these things that he wrote in this psalm are actually your words. And so they meant much to David and the people of his day, but they mean much to us as well, and that's by intent. We understand you have a message for us. You have your truth here in this scripture that we are to receive. And I pray that you help us this morning to do that. Help us understand it. And then help us to be willing to humble ourselves, to submit to the teaching uh, and the truth of your word. And I pray that as I speak, you would give me grace and strength. I would not be up here simply expounding and sharing my own wisdom, but I would simply uh, reveal and expose the truth of the word that we all might be taught, that we all might come to know you, to trust in you, and to follow you today. And thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, psalm 64 is really an interesting song. It spends a majority of its time really focusing on the plots of the wicked, their secrecy. And when it looks as though they're ready to strike and to destroy the man of faith, that's the plan. God steps in to intervene, and he puts his power on display for all to see. Now, if I were to say it in a sentence, I would summarize the psalm this way. The plots of unseen enemies are known to God who will guard and keep his servant. Now you may read through this psalm and think, well, I'm not sure if this is supposed to be encouraging. I'm not sure if this is just David kind of, uh, you know, just, just venting, you know, here his frustration. Well, I think as we read and study Psalm 64, I think the primary thing that we want to see is this psalm reveals to us the nature of God. It shows us who God is and what he is like. And I would say that for some, there is encouragement in that picture. For some of us, as we read this and as we meditate on this, we'll see that there is encouragement here. Isn't it encouraging to know that God discerns the plots of the wicked? And that he is able to keep and to guard his people. Isn't that encouraging? Well, it sure is if you're one of his people. But on the other hand, if, if we realize that God discerns the plots of the wicked, if we ourselves are in that position of scheming and plotting and, and, and trying to set our own trajectory in the world and determined to make our own path apart from God, then can I tell you, it, this psalm reveals that he already knows. You can try and hide it, but he already knows. You can't get away with it. He already knows. The whole thing. And in that sense, it could be a very terrifying thought. So, 
Whether the psalm is encouraging or terrifying, let's look at it together. There are three stanzas, really, at least as I divide the psalm. The first is the first six verses, verses one through six, and I've entitled it Sinner's Scheme. Notice how David begins here by asking for help from God. He says, hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. This is not unusual. We've seen David say things like this numerous times. He's crying out to God. He's in a moment of distress and difficulty. And so what does he do? Well, David prays. He cries out to God. He lifts his voice. Hard to say whether this is an audible prayer or not. It says, it speaks about his voice here, which would suggest that these are audible words spoken by David, that he is lifting his voice to cry out to God. At the same time, it says it's the voice in his meditation. And meditation here is the idea of muttering under your breath. So I don't know whether this is David crying out audibly or whether this is David just in his heart. Frankly, it may not make a difference. Prayer is not more valid when it comes out of our mouth than when it comes out of our heart. And sometimes we pray with our mouth but not with our heart and it doesn't go anywhere. It hits the ceiling and bounces right back down. The point of the matter here is not the nature of David's prayer necessarily. Of course, it's to whom his prayer is directed. He prays to God, hear my prayer, hear my voice, O God. David prays to the Lord. This is what David does when he finds himself in that position of extreme distress. And we see that. But what I find really interesting is the second half of verse 1. Remember, these are poems, and the poems are written in parallel form. So the first line and the second line parallel each other. And they help us to see and understand what the meaning of the verse is. David is saying, Lord, hear my voice. And then he says, preserve my life from fear of the enemy. What David asks for here, I find fascinating. He's not praying, not in verse 1 at least, for deliverance from his enemies. He's not praying for rescue from their hateful designs. What is he praying for here in verse 1? Preserve my life. From what? From the fear of the enemy, right? He didn't say preserve my life from death, preserve my life from the spear and the arrow. Preserve my life, he says, from fear. Now this fear is not the same word that we find in places like Proverbs 1.7. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. If you're following along in our Bible reading schedule, we read that. Uh, at the beginning, actually, I believe we read that at the end of last month. It was the last day of May. We read Proverbs 1 and verse 7. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. But fear in that verse is a religious reverence. It's a moral fear. It's fear that indicates that there is some recognition of the nature of God. But this fear is different in Psalm 64 and verse 1. This fear is terror, panic. It's the kind of fear that paralyzes and that destroys our peace. Now, the reverent fear of God comes in later in this psalm. We'll look at that. But this fear that David is worried about is not the fear of God that springs from faith. In God's power and his word. It's fear that man would overcome him. And cause his heart to despair. David begins by asking God to protect him from fear. Lord keep me from the kind of terror that would would paralyze me. Keep me from becoming so afraid of men that I can't do right. Keep me from being so terrified. That I'm frozen in place. This is the fear that David prays about. There's actually another passage in the book of Proverbs that illustrates this very well. And I wonder if Solomon, who wrote much of the book of Proverbs, 
didn't learn this from his father David, who demonstrated it so clearly here in Psalm 64. You see, in Proverbs 3, Solomon teaches his son to keep sound wisdom and discretion. And he says that if you do that, you will be able to walk without stumbling and sleep sweetly. By the way, just as an aside, how did you sleep this week? If you slept well, then praise the Lord for his gift. And if you were unable to sleep, then I hope that you praised God for his ever-present grace, even when you couldn't sleep. Anyways, that's a holdover from last week. Solomon says, if you hold on to sound wisdom and discretion, my son... You'll be able to walk without stumbling. You'll be able to sleep sweetly. And he goes on to say this in verses 25 and 26 of Proverbs 3. Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For Yahweh will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Did you catch that? Don't be afraid of sudden terror. That's the same word as the word fear here in Psalm 64 and verse 1. Why? Solomon says, son, you don't have to be afraid of terror. You don't have to to, to worry about that petrifying fear of men. Why? Because Yahweh will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. This is the truth that mobilizes David in prayer here in verse 1. Because this is not an imaginary threat. These men truly want to destroy David. They want to destroy everything he stands for. He describes their actions then in verses 2 through 6. They're part of a secret council. He talks about that verse 2, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. Secret plots... It's a word that refers to both the, the, the meeting, of a secret meeting, and also the decision that it comes to. So it, it covers both the group that is planning, the hidden council, and the secret plans that they develop. And David here is talking about that. We're meant to picture here a conspiracy within the palace. David is the king. Well, these men aren't walking up to David and looking him in the face and saying, We've got it out for you, David. We're going to get you off the throne. No. They're hiding. They're meeting together in secret. They're plotting and scheming and laying traps and setting all these plans. And everything is hidden. There's a conspiracy. The second half of verse 2 makes that very clear. It's a rebellion of the workers of iniquity. These are not men who do right. These are not those who are interested in being upright and righteous. They are men of iniquity. They're perverse. They're twisted. They're not interested in truth and in justice and in righteousness. No, these are are, are morally corrupt people. David says they're plotting together. They're meeting together in secret. They're coming up with all sorts of plans. And so the emphasis here is on the secrecy of their conspiracy. Everything is done in secret. Why would they do that? Because they're trying to build a coalition. They're trying to build a coalition. How do you overthrow a king? You've got to get enough people together to rise up against him. And you better make sure that you have all of the pieces in place before you reveal your plan, because if you do too early, he'll find out, and he'll put it down. That's the kind of thinking that goes on here. This whole thing, they're trying to put together a coalition. They're trying to to scheme and plot a rebellion. Then he goes on in verses 3 and 4 to talk about their weapons. Their weapons, which are words. Their weapons, which are words. Their tongue sharpened like a sword. They bend their arrows to shoot, or they bend their bows to shoot arrows. And what are their arrows? They're bitter words. These men are preparing to shoot. Of course, there's nothing new there. We understand and we know that words can be powerfully destructive. 
But again, the idea here isn't just, it's not just that they're careless. You know, sometimes we hurt people because we're careless with our words. We say things unintentionally. We don't know the impact. And we, and we, and we just, you know, sometimes that happens, okay? We're, we're human beings. We, we, we make mistakes. Sometimes we're foolish and we act in ways we shouldn't. And, and we cause hurt, but it's not necessarily intentional. No, sometimes it just happens because of who we are. That's not what's in view here. He says they sharpen them. I mean, there's preparation here. There's, there's, there's a plan here. They set out to do this. And of course, it's not just that they sharpen them, that they're ready to go with these words, but verse 4 describes the fact that they're shooting in secret. The idea here is that they're in hiding. And they're going to shoot from hiding. Now, again... On some level, this makes sense, right? I mean, if you're going to attack, better to do it from hiding where you can't be seen and you won't be hurt. Less risk, right? You want to take a safe path. But the problem here is these men, who are they attacking? Well, he tells us in verse 4, they're going to shoot at the blameless, the upright, the ones who are morally pure and right. They're going to shoot with the intention of wounding and destroying those who are blameless. And the whole thing is done in secret. The whole thing is done with hiddenness. It's all under cover of darkness. Words. Like arrows in the bow. It's bent back. It's prepared to shoot. You almost get the picture of them at the ready with the arrows in the bow. They're, they're, the string is drawn back and they are about to let fly. But it's not arrows, it's words. This is nothing more than gossip. Anonymous rumors, slander intended to deceive and to cause maximum damage with minimum risk. It's in verse 4 that we come to that other word for fear. The one that's used in Proverbs 1-7 that we said has to do with the reverence for God. But notice what verse 4 tells us about David's enemies. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They have no fear of God. They're preparing to shoot at David from the cover of darkness. They have no respect or reverence for God. Think about that the next time you hear something about another person. You're spreading gossip. is like bending back your bow and shooting bitter arrows from out of the shadows. It's a complete repudiation and rejection of the fear of God. It's not walking up to the person and confronting them face to face. David's fully prepared to take on his enemies. If they want to walk up to him and challenge him, David's a warrior. He's ready to go to battle. But see, the problem is he, his enemies aren't doing that. They're not coming and confronting David. They're shooting at him from out of the shadows. Lies, innuendo, slander, gossip. Spreading it around, destroy David's character. David is being forced to contend with enemies who have no respect for him. They have no respect for the truth and no respect for God. Now, the third thing that we see here is that the more people they gather to their secret cause, slander, gossip, character assassination, the bolder they become. They find courage in numbers. As the group gets bigger, that's what it says in verse 5, they encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? David is letting us in here. I don't know how he found out about this. Maybe this is just insight from the Holy Spirit. Maybe David stumbled across one of these secret meetings. I don't know. 
But he lets us in a little bit on what they were talking about here. And he sees that they're discussing this among themselves. And as they do, and as they talk about it, and as they gather together, they get bolder and bolder. There's safety in numbers, right? We tell ourselves that. I'm not the only one. Surely they won't catch me. I had to you know, tell myself that as I was driving 85 on the Eden's Expressway in Chicago the other day, you know, and everybody else was going 90. And you're thinking, you're thinking, you know, I mean, the speed limit says 55. If I were to get pulled over for some strange reason, I've never seen that in all the years I've driven Chicago. But if I were some reason to get pulled over there, I, I don't think I'd have an excuse. <laughs> you know. But then again, there's all these other people out there, right? We're tempted to think that there's safety in numbers. Well, if everybody else is doing it, then I'm okay. I won't get caught. But again, this reveals one kind of thinking. The problem with these people here. They say, listen, we've got our snares set. It's all secret. No one can see them. No one knows. There's no way to trace this back to us. See, their concern is not with God. There's no fear of God here. Their concern is with getting caught. Hey, we've covered our tracks. We're, we've got this all figured out. This whole group, we're all in this together. We're all committed to this. And we've got it worked out. No one will ever find out. Again, those who engage in gossip and slander, those who speak from hiding and hurt others, they have no respect for God. Because they think that the more people that are on their side, the stronger their position becomes. But I have to tell you, and I've touched on this point both of the last two weeks, don't believe the hype. Don't fall for the way things appear. Because appearances can often be deceiving. Notice what David says there in verses 5 and 6. He says in verse 5 that they encourage themselves. It means they make themselves strong. And how do they do that? By discussing their plans together. They refine their plot. They talk it through. They work out all of the details. And the more they do that, the better their scheme becomes until at last they are convinced that they've hatched the perfect plan. It's foolproof. It can't fail. And most importantly, it will never be traced back to them. They're sure to get away with it. This is the kind of thinking that we see here. This is the kind of thinking of David's enemies. But this is the kind of thinking that fuels gossip and slander and innuendo and talking behind someone's back. That's why we whisper it. Because if nobody else hears it, then it'll never get traced back to me. And I don't have to worry about the consequences of it. Because I, I, I'll never get caught. And besides, I'm not the only one. That's what they say in verse 6. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. We, we made it perfect. We got a perfect plan. Everything is going according to plan. Everything is falling into place. It cannot fail. And at the end, I think this is David's Maybe summation of the point here. He says at the end of verse 6, Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. You know, the human heart has an almost limitless capacity to imagine evil things, to devise wicked plans, to think of fouler and fouler things which dishonor God and cruelly hurt others. And we do this without, almost without having to try. It just comes so naturally to us. That's why the prophet Jeremiah wrote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Can you know the thoughts of another man or woman this morning? Nope. 
You can't. You can't know the thoughts of the person sitting next to you. But the really scary part, at least this is what's really scary to me, humanly speaking here, is that you can't even know and understand your own thoughts and desires. I mean, if we're going to be honest this morning, we have to admit that there are things in our hearts of which we are ashamed. Desires, longings, thoughts, imaginations. Sometimes our thoughts surprise us. The hatred, the anger, bitterness, the jealousy, the lust, the selfishness. These are just some of the things that we find in our own hearts that trouble us. Try plumbing the depths. You won't find it. You can't get to the bottom. But I'm so glad that Jeremiah didn't stop with his question, who can know it? He went on in the very next verse, Jeremiah 17, to say this, I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. This is really what Psalm 64 is all about. The wicked are hiding. They're hatching secret plots to destroy the righteous. They're gathering together all of their collective resources, developing the perfect plot. And as their hearts are unsearchable to others and even to themselves, they remain confident that everything will go according to plan. This is the arrogance that I mentioned at the beginning. When we begin to think that we've got the whole world figured out, and we begin to think that the depths of our hearts are completely unfathomable. Verse 7. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. They are preparing to let fly their arrows, bitter words, suddenly into the heart of their enemies. And suddenly God lets his own arrow fly. And you know that his aim is true. If the first stanza was entitled Sinner's Scheme, the second I would entitle The Almighty Answers. He strikes a blow. He makes them tumble over their own tongue. The idea here is that God turns their plots against them. He causes their own words to come back like a boomerang and strike them down. This is the power of God as seen in judgment. He causes the wicked to be destroyed just as they're preparing the final strike of their victory. We sometimes call this snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Usually we use a phrase like that. We're talking about, say, a, a sports team or something that had it ready to go. You know, like the uh, 3-0 and Warriors last year in the NBA Finals who had it in the bag. Up three games to nothing. All they had to do was win one more game. And what they do? They lost four in a row and lost the series. Snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. But the issue here is not the futility of the wicked. It's not their inability to execute evil. The issue here is that they ignored God. They left God completely out of the calculation. They had the perfect plot. Except for that one little detail. They thought their hearts were so deep that no one could ever discern the true agenda, the schemes that they were concocting. But the truth was, God was watching the whole time. They never actually had a chance to succeed. This, I think, is what we need to grasp from Psalm 64. That our puffed-up self-image is nothing more than hot air. Imagine a balloon stretching farther and farther until it pops and the whole thing deflates. 
I don't think David is wrong in verse 6 to say that our inward thought and our hearts are deep. That's true insofar as it goes. From a human perspective, for you and for me, the heart of man, even my own heart, is deep and I cannot fathom it. I cannot understand it. But at the same time, I can't buy into the lie that this depth of my heart is beyond God's ability to understand. Because this psalm indicates that he will expose it in judgment. I mentioned the speech that I heard at my niece's graduation and how it reminded me of my youthful arrogance, but and as I reflected more on that, I realized that I have to be honest, I didn't leave my pride behind when I graduated high school, or for that matter, when I graduated from college, or when I got married, or when I had kids, or when I became a pastor, or at any other point in my life until now. And so I shouldn't just impugn high school seniors for their pride and arrogance. That's true, but I don't want to give the impression that it stops there. There is a tendency to this same kind of pride. The pride that says, I'm so deep. My thoughts are so profound. No one else can possibly see things with the clarity and the understanding that I have. That's nothing more than foolishness. When we start thinking that way, we need to realize that God is already there ahead of us. He knows what we're thinking. He knows the plans and the imaginations and the thoughts of our heart. He knows the plans and the plots that we're hatching. And the moment that we're ready to spring the trap, the moment that we're ready to set our plans into motion, watch out. Because God's been waiting for that moment himself. There's an expression, let the punishment fit the crime. And that's exactly what we see here. I'd put it this way, that when the Almighty answers, he responds in kind. Because the punishment, the, the response here from God is perfectly crafted, right? They prepare sharp arrows, but God is the one who shoots an arrow. They craft bitter words, but God causes them to stumble over their own tongue. They intend to strike suddenly and without warning, but it's God who attacks suddenly, bringing destruction down on them before they can even comprehend what's happening. And not only does the punishment fit the crime, but it easily overcomes them. Oh, they gather together all of their all of their forces, all their resources. They had their, their rebellion ready to go. Thinking that there was safety in numbers. If we could just get enough people into it to commit to it, then we could have victory. But God's judgment overcomes them. Not only does God respond in kind, but he responds overwhelmingly. That's the picture here. He shoots his arrow and suddenly they're wounded. That word for wounded means they're, they're struck a blow. He make them stumble over their own tongue. Hey, they got lies. They got gossip. They got uh, innuendo. They got slander to spread around. And guess what? It's their very words, their own slanderous tongue and speech that's going to destroy them. That's what he says. This is what happens. When we engage in that kind of behavior. And he says there in the last part of verse 8. All who see them shall flee away. That word flee away has the idea of shake back and forth. And, and, and it may suggest some translations suggest that it has the idea of all who, who, um, who see them will kind of wag their heads. They'll look at them and say, boy, they really, they really did a number on themselves. There's no protection for the ungodly when the Lord judges. But I want you to see that this psalm is about more than just judgment. 
It's really, again, as I said, about revealing the true God and teaching men to fear and honor him. The third and final stanza I have entitled, Men Marvel. Men Marvel. Because it focuses on the reaction, first of the eyewitnesses to the judgment, and then of the people of God, the righteous ones who are bound to God by his covenant. And the first reaction we see in verse 9, and that's more of a general one. We come again to that word fear. All men shall fear. It's the same word that we saw in verse 4. That word for reverential, moral fear. This is not that petrifying terror that David was concerned about. It's that awe and reverence that was missing from the hearts of David's enemies. It's that fear of God that's missing when we engage in gossip and slander and bitter words where we shoot at the others from out of hiding. The sudden judgment of God on wicked men causes others to fear him. And it even goes on. They'll declare the work of God. It causes them to talk about what God has done. And then lastly, they're all of the upright, and, or I'm sorry, uh, they shall wisely consider his doing. In other words, they will take a closer look at what God is doing. This judgment of God causes others, those who see it, to step back and say, whoa, we better consider what God is doing. They may have been indifferent before, but now they're wide awake and alert. It's, it's, it's what uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote. He said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes, again, we begin to think that nobody's watching, nobody's paying attention. Everything is just within our own hearts, our own minds. No one can see it, no one can know it. And, and there's, no, there's no point at which we'll be called into account. And all of a sudden, God's judgment comes and it causes us to step back and go, whoa. He was paying attention all along. What is God doing? We better listen. We better pay attention. That's what is accomplished here by the judgment of God. That when God judges the ungodly by their own actions, it awakens the world. It awakens the world to consider the work of God. To, to look at God and consider His nature. To talk about his great works. To carefully consider what he has said and what he has done. So we could say that the first response of men to God's judgment is they ponder God's ways. It causes us to sit up and take notice. God is doing something here. This is the universal effect of God's judgment. That it causes all men to stop and to think, to pay attention to him, to wonder at his awesome power. In fact, the Bible tells us that this is so. There's several examples throughout Scripture of this. I think of Pharaoh in Egypt when God sent Moses down to bring the people of Israel out. Do you remember that? And God told Moses, Moses, you're going to go down there and Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. He's going to harden his heart. And he's going to refuse to let the people go. But Moses, don't worry. Because that's all part of my plan. Harden Pharaoh's heart. So that my power can be displayed in him throughout the whole world. You ever consider what would have happened if Pharaoh had agreed? If he'd said, you're right, Moses. I've gotten a lot of good work out of these Israelites. They've been my slaves for 400 years. Um, you know, we built a lot of cities together. They've done good work. But you know what? They've definitely, you know, they've, they've earned the right to go free. Sure, Moses, take them out. What would the world be saying about that Pharaoh? What a magnanimous ruler. What a gracious guy. He could have kept them, but he didn't. He let them go. What a good guy he was. I see Pharaoh hardened his heart. And he said, no, I won't let them go. Your God means nothing to me. And the Lord. The Lord reached down with his strong right arm and he drove Pharaoh back. And he destroyed Pharaoh's pride. 
the firstborn of Egypt. And he destroyed Pharaoh's army in the waters of the Red Sea. And he brought his people out by his power so that 40 years later, the people of the city of Jericho were saying, we heard about what happened in the Red Sea and we are terrified that God has sent you here. That was the kind of awareness that David is talking about here. All men will see it and they will fear the Lord. I think of another instance in scripture, Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon. In his day, the greatest, most powerful uh, ruler in the entire world. He was warned by God in a dream that when he was lifted up in pride, he would be divinely humbled. One day, Nebuchadnezzar was walking in his palace. He was looking over his kingdom and he said to himself, Look at this great Babylon that I have built. And the scriptures tell us that instantly his mind was taken from him. He became insane and he wandered in the fields for seven years like an animal. And then, just as God had promised, his mind and his kingdom were restored to him. He walked back in and he sat back down on his throne as king over Babylon and his words changed He gave this testimony in Daniel chapter 4. Now I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride he is able to put down. You see the judgment of God is intended to cause men to fear him. To see him for who he is. To ponder his ways. This is the God who created us. Who created all of this world. And when we're tempted to think so highly of ourselves. And of our sophistication. Of our great insight and our deep thoughts. We should remember who he is and what he has done. There's one more thing about the response to God's judgment in this psalm, and that is the response of those who know the Lord. The righteous ones. Those who are members of his covenant people. David says there in verse 10 that they will be glad in Yahweh and trust in him. He actually, surprisingly here, uses the covenant name of Yahweh in this verse. And you say, well, why is that surprising? Well, for two reasons. First of all, it's surprising because this second book of the Psalter, from Psalm 42 to 72, is part of what is often called the Elohistic Psalter because the name of Yahweh is very, very rarely used. Normally, we have the more general term for God, Elohim. That's used all throughout these psalms. It's the only time the name Yahweh appears between Psalm 59 and Psalm 68 is right here in this verse. It's it, only one time. The psalms prior to this, the psalms after this, don't mention the name at all. So it's unusual. It strikes us. It stands out here. Why? These are the people. These are the people, the righteous, the upright in heart, those who already know the Lord. That's why they use his name here. Because they know him. And will all of the world, all men, even the unbelieving, will see God's work and fear and consider his ways. Those who believe, they will rejoice in God. They will rejoice in the one who loves them, who is committed to him, and they will trust in him. Now you say, well, haven't they already trusted in him? Isn't that kind of the point? They are already his people. Yes. Those who already have trusted in him, their, their faith will be strengthened. It will be renewed. It will be built up. As I said, when we cry out to God and he demonstrates his power to know the hearts of evil men and to thwart their plans, then if we know him, that ought to encourage us. God knows the plans. 
He knows the plots and the schemes and the gossip and the slander and the lies. He knows all that stuff. I'd put it this way. If he knows about it, and if he's capable of dealing with it, you don't have to. You don't have to worry about what they're saying. You don't have to worry about all of that stuff. Well, how do I deal with that? How do I stop them from talking that way? How do I stop them from saying stuff about me? You know what? You don't have to. Let God do that. Let him take care of that. Don't you think he knows what's going on? Don't you think he can see it? Really, really good piece of advice I received from a pastor several years ago. He's retired now. But he commented, and it wasn't a piece of advice directed at me. I just heard him say this, he and his wife. And they were saying that in the ministry of the church, for a pastor to spend all of his time trying to put out fires is foolish. You start putting out fires and that's all you'll ever do. Instead, you know what you got to do? You got to get the word of God. And you got to preach and teach the word of God. You got to pray for people. You got to let God do his work. I'm so thankful for them. Actually, the other, I'll say this because they're not here right now, but Jim and Eileen Dempsey, if they get the recording, they'll have to hear about this. But Jim told me once a couple years ago, they've seen a lot of pastors. They've seen, I wasn't really sure how to take it. He kind of said, well, we've seen young pastors like you come in here and, you know, they got all their ideas about things. And he says, I just want to encourage you. There's two things you need to do. Preach the word of God and pray. Just let the rest of the things take care of themselves. You know, it's good advice for a pastor, but it's good advice for you too. Right? You don't have to go around trying to put out every fire and stamp it all. You can trust that God knows what's going on, that he knows what's taking place. You can rejoice. You can be glad in the Lord and trust in Him. You can glory in Him. I think that's really the, the message of the psalm, the takeaway. If, if you could take away one thing, it's this, that God's wisdom and His power are far greater than ours. When you're tempted to think that your heart is so deep and unknowable that even God can't see what you're up to, remember David's enemies. They plotted and schemed and crafted what they thought was a perfect plan to attack. But in the end, they were overthrown by the power of God. And when you're tempted to think that your enemies who are plotting and scheming in secret will never be caught, will never have to face the music, never have to answer for what they're doing, Remember that God is already there ahead of them. He knows where their plot is. He's prepared to strike. Trust him. Let's pray.